Thank you, Georgia, uh, George, and, and Kim for reading uh, the book of Titus so faithfully. Uh, again, as, as we've said uh, both times we, we've been in this book so far, uh, it really is such a, a short little book, uh, but there's much to be gained from it, uh, and it's so good. Uh, so as we continue to unpack that, uh, just remember that. You can, you can read it very quickly uh, throughout the week uh, as we're continuing to look ahead uh, to the next passage each week. Uh, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for a break from the rain. Uh, it's a beautiful day uh, today as we gather together uh, at our house. We got five inches uh, in like 48 hours, so <laughs> that was a lot. Um, but it's, uh, it's a beautiful day outside, a beautiful day to be gathered together uh, at Skeens Church. Uh, as we continue to, to work through uh, this small little book uh, of the Bible in Titus, uh, I hope that we see uh, the great importance that God places on his word and his truthfulness in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. As we open our Bibles, uh, if you need one, please feel free to, to take one from the pew in front of you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible yourself, uh, please take that uh, as a gift from us here at, at King's Church. Uh, let's read together, uh, focusing in on... Uh, our passage in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we come to you as we, we open your word this morning. Uh, Father, uh, pray that uh, your spirit would, would fill each and every one of us, uh, that as I, as I teach and lead us through this passage, uh, that these would be your words coming through me, not my own. Uh, Father, that it would be you and me. Uh, and Father, for... Our people, as they listen, uh, I pray that you would bring knowledge and, and understanding, uh, attentiveness. Father, I pray that, uh, that your word would just take root in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we begin to, to unpack these verses today, uh, we need to, to first lay out just a little bit of, of context. Uh, first, Caleb uh, mentioned this last week, uh, but Titus is uh, a pastoral epistle. Uh, similar to uh, First and, and Second Timothy, um, a pastoral epistle is a letter that is written specifically to an elder or a pastor, overseer, bishop, shepherd. This letter was, was written to Titus, who was a dear brother and a co-laborer of Paul. Uh, in this letter, Paul's instructing or reminding Titus, and by extension all elders, in how to lead a healthy church specifically against false teaching. Now, that being said, this, this passage also applies to every Christian, and we're going to be looking at how both the elder and the layperson can apply this passage into their lives. Uh, for those of you that take very good notes, you, you might remember uh, 
Philippians, it may be coming to, to mind. Uh, this, this past spring, uh, we, we talked all the way through the book of Philippians. And in chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, Paul addressed those that were preaching the gospel in spite of him and to spite him while he was in prison. But there Paul did not rebuke them, but he rejoiced in the fact that the gospel they were preaching was true and that the gospel was advancing. Uh, but today, we're going to see Paul rebuking these that are teaching. And so, this is a different issue, and, and we need to recognize that, uh, that. That what Paul is addressing is, is false teaching. They're not preaching the true gospel. And so, uh, even, even if their motives were good in this, which they're not, he, he can't rejoice in the truth because it doesn't exist. They're, they're preaching a false gospel. And we'll see that Paul is adamantly opposed to this spreading. That he considers it to be like a disease. Uh, next thing to, to recall is just Paul's experience with false teaching himself. And Paul was no stranger to false teaching. He persecuted the church as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he boasted about this. Even as a Christian, he, he humbly uh, remembers and, and recognizes his persecution of the church. He believed Christians these, these followers of Christ, of uh, Nazareth, to be blasphemers before Christ revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus and removed the scales from his eyes, he thought that they were false teachers uh, and did not realize that he himself was the one that was proclaiming falsehood. And then once he realized that he had been the one who lacked understanding, it radically changed his life. And he went on to be uh, one, of, one of the greatest examples we can look to of what it means to follow Christ well. Later, during Paul's ministry, he encountered false teachers constantly and was relentlessly persecuted by them. This would ultimately lead to Paul's arrest multiple times and, and cost him his life for the sake of Christ. Uh, but to Paul, this, this really came as no surprise. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 31, early in Paul's ministry, uh, we read, picking up in, in verse 17, uh, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and, and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is Paul we're talking about. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers 
to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul, as he is addressing the elders from Ephesus, he knew that false teaching was going to arise. And now here in Titus, he is expanding on what it means for the elders, specifically Titus, to be alert. And that's really the focus of our passage today. Caleb mentioned last week how verse 9 really sets up verses 10 to 16. And we're going to see today how 10 to 16 are perfectly bookended by chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 2, verse 1, as Paul addresses his main concern in writing this letter to Titus. So this brings us to our, our main idea, the central theme of this passage. And that is that we are to hold fast to the word of God so that we may be sound in doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. Again, we are to hold fast to the word of God so that we may be sound in doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, if that looks familiar, that's because it's verse 9. It's speaking to the elder, and speaking of the elder, Paul says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And this applies to the elder, but also to every lay person. So picking up in, in verse 10, the, the first question we need to consider is, Who are these false teachers? Uh, the first thing that we learn about them is that there, there are many. This is no small threat that the church in Crete, the Cretans, are facing. There are many of them who wish to, to lead these, Christ, uh, these Christians astray. We don't know the, the amount. We know it was enough for Paul to need to write an entire letter about it. So there was great significance in this. And we also know that they, they differ uh, in, in what they're, they're proclaiming. We know it's not just one group of false teaching, but there are, there are multiple different groups of false teachers here. Uh, as we see some of the characteristics of them, Paul continues on. He says, there's insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And then he, he goes on to say in the second half of verse 11 that they teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So we see that they are, they're not submitting to God. That they speak with empty talk and, and they're deceivers. Uh, this, this came out in our discussion in a small group last week, but this even describes us apart from Christ. That we do not know truth apart from the gospel. In verse 11, Paul says that they, they teach for shameful gain. In verse 12, he goes on to agree with the Cretan prophet that they are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. These false teachers are seeking to profit off of those who will follow them. They want to make money. That is their motivator. They seek to deceive those for their gain on this side of heaven. And sadly, this still describes our culture in America so well today. The devil is effectively using many who wish to lead Christians astray. 
And this comes from all sorts of different pockets of, of false gospels. Many of them, though, even preach in churches on Sunday mornings, speaking words that are full of nothing, building themselves up and deceiving those they lead because it benefits them on this earth to do so. And our own city is not even free from this type of false teaching. And so we need to be on guard. Third, we we see that Paul here specifically mentions the false teachers of the circumcision party, or as they're also known, the Judaizers. This was a group of, of Jews that claimed to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but who believed that circumcision was a requirement for Gentiles to truly be saved. This was a a faith plus works gospel that they believed. And we're going to see that uh, come up again in just a bit. But this leads us to our our next question we need to consider. Now that we know who these false teachers are, we need to understand what they are teaching. And so as we, we just stated, we know that the Judaizers, they taught the Gentiles, needed to be circumcised like the Jews in order to truly be a Christian. And then we have this other group uh, that seems similar, but there there are some differences here. And so uh, these other false teachers mentioned here, they seem to be similar in their beliefs to the ones found in 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, They taught about Jewish myths stemming from the Jewish law. They quarreled about the the Old Testament law. Uh, They taught on uh, genealogies. Uh, They they prohibited uh, certain types of marriage and prohibited certain types of food. Uh, We're not going to go into too much detail about that. Uh, The the main point here to to note is uh, that they believed that you not only had to to believe in the gospel, but that you had to uphold the law, and you had to to abstain from certain things in order to be able to be saved. And so again, it is a works plus faith, uh, and a faith plus works type of gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This sounds very similar uh, to what we, we read about here in, in 10 to 16. Uh, this seems to be the, the same kind of ideology here. And uh, again, we, we see this work out to this day in our culture, right? How many professing Christians do we encounter each week that say things like, I'm a good person, or I go to church, I read my Bible, I talk to God. And they're, they're pointing to their works, as a means of salvation, or even non-believers. Often when we are uh, out evangelizing, we're sharing the gospel with the lost, we hear people uh, claim that they're a good person, right, or, or that they do a lot of community service, or that they, they give a lot to charity. And, and so for that, they, they should deserve to, to have eternal life. Uh, in the South here, there's, there's an old saying that people seem to, to love to say. I still hear it uh, constantly, uh, where it says that I don't, cuss or, or drink or chew or hang around with girls that do, right? Uh, that is, if you could summarize Southern Christians in one line, like, that's it, right? That is, that is what uh, has typically marked us here in the South. 
is, is clinging to this idea of traditionalism and legalism, this idea of, like, I am a good Christian, I know Jesus, I'm good, and not actually digging deeper into our own faith, working out our salvation, being discipled, and, and knowing the word of God so that we may fend off false teachings. But how similar is this idea of, of pointing to our works and saying, like, oh, we're, we're good people, to the mindset that these false teachers were proclaiming. They're sitting here boasting in their legalism and in their works. But apart from the gospel, all of these works are empty. There's no value to them. We just studied this truth in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And that just led us through a wonderful new song that we're going to be incorporating here at Kings. And it just spoke so richly to this truth that our righteousness is not our own. It is only Jesus in us that makes us righteous. And see, this is, this is where these teachers' falsehood is, is broadly on display. God, through Paul, remains consistent in this declaration that we are only saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Our works cannot save us. That does not excuse us from from working, as James clarifies in his letter in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, where we see that our works should be an overflowing of our faith in the gospel. But it, it is never our works that save us. It is our faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul speaks to this in, in verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These false teachers seem to be teaching a very similar gospel to what even the Apostle Peter needed to be rebuked of. As he struggled to comprehend that the Gentiles could come to the faith as they were without needing to adopt the Jewish food laws to be made pure, and he himself struggled that what he had considered to be taboo and off-limits for his whole life was, was now open to him. He struggled to be able to reconcile that in his mind. He even needed to be rebuked of this. And what Paul is saying here is that to those in Christ, every good thing is to be enjoyed. But for those apart from Christ, the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure because they themselves are impure. Now this, this doesn't count sinful things as pure. Make no mistake about that. People will often try and misconstrue this verse to mean that as a professing believer, anything is good. I can do anything. We know that Paul rejects this idea what should we sin so that may uh, so the grace may abound? No, by no means. But I've I've heard people use this ex- 
this excuse right here, this verse to excuse gluttony before, because God has made all food to uh, all food to be pure. Therefore, they can have as much as they like. Like all all things are pure, and it specifically addresses food. So then, all food is pure. That's not what Paul is saying here. The point he's making is simply that the restrictions on the certain types of food that the Jews were not allowed to eat had been lifted by God, and that all of his creation, everything that was good, was to be enjoyed. He goes on. He's he's not just worried about food laws. He, He goes on to address their spiritual state, saying they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Notice the harsh language here. Again, contrast this with Philippians, where Paul was saying these, these people that were going out and preaching the gospel in spite of him because he was in prison, they were doing it for, for their own gain, but he was at least able to rejoice that they were sharing the true gospel. But Paul doesn't mince words here. He says that they are detestable, that they are disobedient, unfit for any good work. Earlier, he, he affirmed what the Cretan prophet said, that they are liars, they are evil beasts, they are lazy gluttons. Paul is rebuking them with harsh language here. And he is saying that the very thing that they boast in is the reason they do not know God. Again, if they truly knew God, their works would not be done for their selfish gain. But it would be an overflowing of their hearts as they worship God in all that they do. So now that we've, we've addressed these false teachings... We need to understand how to combat them. I think Paul does this really well. As we already saw in verse 9, we are to know God's word so that we might be sound in our doctrine and able to recognize false teaching. That doesn't just mean that each of us needs to daily be reading our Bibles. That even impacts the way that we preach the Bible here at King's Church. This is why we work through the Bible expositionally, book by book and verse by verse. The church needs a consistent diet of Scripture in order to stay healthy. This also helps guard against any teacher, any one teacher, from getting behind the pulpit and teaching on whatever they would like to speak about. There's enough of that out there in churches today. What we don't need is more people getting up and talking about whatever they think is important. What we need is people being faithful to God's Word and to preach it and proclaim it. We trust in God's inerrant word to provide the teaching we need as a church. And the Spirit's working in and through us as we do that. So that we do not become puffed up with conceit. Caleb mentioned this last week as he was walking through the qualifications for elders. This is why we don't have new converts raised to the office of elder. So they may not quickly think that they are doing something good. And it is not God working through them and become puffed up with conceit themselves. This is also why we have a plurality of elders. We are better safeguarded from false teaching when each of our elders has to submit to one another and hold one another accountable. This is also, church, your job as well. Caleb encouraged you last week, and I encourage you again this week. And I know that Chad is sitting there encouraging you as well. Hold us accountable. You have the standards of an elder here in verses 5 to 9, as well in 1 Timothy 
chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Hold us to them. And Paul has displayed this perfectly for us here so far in Titus. He has, he has walked through knowing God's word and then counteracting the false teaching with the word. Just as Christ did, quoting scripture back to Satan when he was being tempted. That is what Paul's source of truth. He goes to the word. Paul tells Titus to secondly silence these false teachers. So this is the second way that we combat false teaching. We silence them. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul brings more clarity to why they must be silenced later in Titus, chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. We're going to be there uh, in just a couple of weeks, and, and Chad is going to walk us through this passage. And picking up in verse 9, Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The elders have a responsibility to silence false teachers so that their teaching does not spread like a disease throughout their congregation. That's easy to say, but what does that actually look like? Chapter 1, verse 11, gives some insight. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One commentator suggests that the word families here can actually be translated as as houses or households. And in the early church, we know that they gathered regularly in, in one another's homes. And we seek to model this well here today through our small groups and our discipleship groups. Believers regularly gathering together in one another's homes. And so the danger here was not just that individual families were being lost to these false teachers. The danger was that portions, whole portions of the congregation were gathering together in these homes. So it wasn't just individual families being lost to these false teachers, but it was portions of the congregation that were being lost to these false teachers who were steering people astray while they were gathering in one another's homes. And so this is why it is so important, not only for the elders to be guarding against false teachings, but for small group leaders, discipleship group leaders, parents and friends to be on guard for one another as well. Trust in your knowledge and in your understanding of the word and the Holy Spirit's power to alert you to what sounds contrary to the Bible. If someone is speaking falsehood, do not shy away from correcting them. Now, do this with grace for the, for the good of the whole gathering and for the good of that person. But don't, don't shy away because we're, we're thinking we're abounding in grace. If, if we're abounding in grace but not sharing truth, then we're not abounding in grace. We're just condemning them. Because we're allowing them to continue to teach falsely. So our third, third way that we combat false teaching is that we rebuke false teachers and their followers. We, we saw Paul do this. Again, he, he did not mince words. Right? So, so as we're silencing them, that's, that's in the context of one another's homes. If someone is speaking up and saying something, just correct them. 
make sure that they're not continuing to spread false ideas. But then what happens when this occurs in the pulpit? What happens when you have a teacher in front of the entire church teaching falsely? Paul instructs Titus to to rebuke them sharply, and not just the teachers, but the followers too, so that they may be sound in the faith. Notice, Notice that tag there, right? He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. We're going to come back to that. Paul here is following Jesus' teaching of church discipline in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. There Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or an unbeliever and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. We also see Paul emphasize this in his first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. That's just a lengthier passage, so we're not going to go there today, but I would encourage you to to take a look at that as well. That's also just a supporting passage uh, for this idea and this concept of church discipline we see modeled throughout the New Testament. But one thing I, I do want to draw out, we just touched on this, is that wherever church discipline is displayed in the New Testament, The goal is always for the restoration of the one who is straying. The the goal is not to to rebuke them and tell them how awful of a person they are, though that may be necessary. The goal is to win them back to the faith or to the faith for the first time. The goal is always to be restoring this person's soul. Uh, A helpful analogy came up during our discussion in small group last week at our table. Think of a, a surgeon, right? A surgeon's job is to accurately remove or repair unhealthy areas of the body with great accuracy and with great precision. They spend years and years studying the human body so that they know what a healthy person should look like, but also studying various diseases, injuries, and other common abnormalities so that they may know how to effectively treat them. They're not trying to cause more harm or pain, though sometimes that is necessary. Think of uh, an arm or a leg being broken. Getting that thing set is not going to be fun, but it's going to be good because you'll have a healed arm rather than one that is permanently broken. So they're, they're not trying to inflict more pain, though sometimes that is necessary to restore that person's health, but they remove the unhealthy area or repair it, if possible, in the case of a broken bone for the person's good in this life. And so I want you to think that in terms of that, we are to be eternal surgeons, right? We're not just focusing on people's health in this life. We are focusing on their internal health. We are to be eternal surgeons by the power of the Holy Spirit, rebuking those that are straying with grace so that they may be restored or pointed to the one true gospel. Uh, as the band makes their way back up, uh, just a few points that I, I want us to stop and, and to consider this morning. Again, I mentioned how this, this is a pastoral epistle. This is written to the elders, right? And so we're going to stop and we're going to apply specifically to the elders and then broadly to the whole church as well. 
So to the elders, teach sound doctrine by teaching God's word. Again, if you see us straying in any of these ways, please come confront us. The elders are to hold one another accountable. We're to shepherd the flock. And as shepherds often do, if there is a sheep that is straying towards the edge of a cliff, we're to, to break its leg to keep it from killing itself and to bring it back into the fold. Another job that we have is to make people aware of false teachings and why they are dangerous. Just as Paul clearly displayed here as he's addressing Titus, he does this as well in First and Second Timothy. Part of, part of my role here at King's Church is to really oversee our worship services, our corporate gatherings on Sunday mornings. I have many that help me do that. Uh, but one of, our, one of our main focuses is that in every element of our service, whether that is through prayer or scripture reading, uh, through, through praying together corporately or us just praying over you, through our offering, through our preaching, and through the songs that we sing, we want to be teaching sound doctrine. And we want to be singing songs that are filled with biblical truth. And so one thing that you'll notice for us as the elders, is that in our song selection, we're going to avoid certain very mainstream songs. We're not going to sing songs just because they're popular and people like listening to them. We always examine how does this song stack up against Scripture? Is it faithful to the text? Is it sound in its doctrine? That's one of the reasons that, though they do write some good songs, we, we don't sing songs uh, by Hillsong or by Bethel here. And, and we won't do that from the stage. And now as we're, we're thinking about the church too, I want you to think on that as well, even in your own personal life. What, what are you intaking? What podcasts are you listening to? What sermons are you listening to? What videos are, are you watching? What songs are you singing along with? Are they for your benefit and so that you may abound in knowledge and understanding and in sound doctrine? Or are they just nice and, and maybe fluffy? Examine what you're intaking. I'm not, I'm not speaking conviction or condemnation on anybody here. But as we continue to be made more and more like Christ, we should desire to have his word fill us in anything and everything that we do. So that we are worshiping him throughout the week in every aspect of our lives. Another overflowing of that is to the church, be in God's word daily to guard against being led astray yourselves. How are you going to know if we are teaching something false if you yourselves are not in the word? And this doesn't just apply to you, but this applies to the elders as well. How are we going to teach you if we aren't in the word ourselves? How are we going to have knowledge and understanding if we aren't abounding in the word? Second, hold the elders accountable to God's word. Use that knowledge and that wisdom. If you see us leading you astray, if you see anyone leading others astray, don't be silent. Speak up. Say something about it. Third, guard your households. And we've already talked about small group and discipleship group leaders needing to do this well when they're gathering, but it doesn't just in there. The, the individual families are included. So moms and dads, guard, guard your household. Single folks that have multiple roommates, all living together, right? Like, guard your brothers, guard your sisters that you live with. Make sure that you are all abounding in sound doctrine. Don't let false teaching take root in your own home. 
And lastly, rebuke others in love. Again, we are never rebuking others because we want to be puffed up or or feel prideful or feel better about ourselves or want to cut someone else down because they've wronged us. So before you do that, check yourself. But then, after some time, you still need to address this person. Address them boldly. Do so with grace. But call out their sinfulness. Call out the error of their ways. Cut out the diseased areas of their hearts so that they may be healthy eternally and be more like Christ because you are in their life. And just lastly for all of us, as we're thinking about faith and works, again, just this, this idea that Paul's already, already touched on, right? Let the, the fruits of our faith be on display through our works. Our cup should be overflowing so that our faith is expressed through our outward works. We shouldn't be doing empty works, but we shouldn't be sitting here claiming that we have faith and so we don't really need works. They are, they are one and the same. If we have great faith, we will have great works. As we, as we close, I, I do just want to make an appeal to the lost. If you only know false teaching, if you grew up in the Catholic Church, if you grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, grew up as a Mormon, and you don't know this gospel, if you have just grown up as agnostic, and you just, you just don't believe in our God, if you grew up, as an, uh, grew up as an atheist and you just don't believe any God exists, I would compel you that uh, you are delusional. You, you don't truly understand the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You don't understand the gospel that will eternally save you and promise everlasting life. So please, please, don't let the end of this life be the closest that you get to heaven. Please talk to the person you came with today. Talk to to one of the elders. We will gladly talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to recognize him as your Savior and your Lord. Abandon these false teachings. Cling to the truth and seek the gospel that is full, that's not empty, that lifts up others, not oneself, and that is true and not deceitful. Let's pray together. God, we, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, Father, that you equip us with your word to be, to be strong, to be equipped, to be bold with it, so that we can see truth abound in our community here in Charlotte, in this nation, uh, and among the nations, Father. As the gospel goes forth, Father, we just pray that you would help us to be boldly, to use your word well as our sword and our strength, Father. We pray that your spirit would fill us as we seek our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our families to know you for eternity, for their lives to be radically changed by the one true gospel. Father, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in the way that our faith overflows into our works and that we cling to truth here as a church. Father, I pray that that would be the testimony of King's Church in years to come, that we've always clung fast to you, that we hold fast to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.